What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Aku mendatangi bapak ini kalau untuk maksud yang negatif, maksud jelek itu enggak ada. I'm not here to harm you, but to reveal true history. All this time, history has been distorted. The people you killed had no religion. It's a lie. Translating there from a scene in The Look of Silence in which director Joshua Oppenheimer follows up his acclaimed 2013 documentary The Act of Killing with the story of a man named Adi as he confronts the men who killed his brother, one of the hundreds of thousands of victims of an anti-communist purge that took place in Indonesia in the mid-1960s. The men responsible for the genocide have never been brought to justice. On this week's show, our review of The Look of Silence, plus our top five haunted past movies. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Spotting is once again brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And Josh, for the first time ever, we've had Mubi on board for a while, and I know our listeners have tried their service and subscribed to their service because we've seen the comments on Twitter and also in email. But this is our first legitimate Mubi testimonial. Tom from Piedmont, California, wrote in to say, I signed up for Mubi about a month ago using the offer code And I really love it, both for the content and for the interface. I fly a lot, so the idea of downloading movies to my iPad really appealed to me. The app is easy to use, and the quality of the downloaded movies is excellent. The selection of movies is eclectic, but right in the film-spotting wheelhouse. I caught up with the host and Barking Dogs Never Bite from Bong Joon-ho, as well as some old Chaplin shorts. I'm currently watching Uncle Boon Me and looking forward to muddling through Josh's 2012 favorite Leviathan, sorry Adam, before its month is up. Good sponsor. I hope more people check it out. We do hope more people check out Movie Muddling through. Muddling you, you through. You might want to adjust your attitude seems there, appropriate. Tom. And it is appropriate because Leviathan is one of the new movies. Your number one film of a few years ago that is available this month over at Movie. That's the one that captures the collaborative clash of man, nature, and machine. It's shot on a dozen small cameras, tossed and tethered, passed from fisherman to filmmaker. A cosmic portrait of mankind's place at the edge of wilderness. Also at Mubi is I Saw the Devil, a hard-boiled thriller from Korean master Kim Ji-woon. I Saw the Devil is a tale of bloody vengeance against a dangerous psychopath who's committed a gruesome series of murders. One of those films that film spotting listeners who have seen it, because obviously it wasn't a widely circulated movie, not a mainstream movie, I Saw the Devil, but it's one that I think a lot of people believe we got way wrong here on the show. Because you didn't like it? Didn't like you, it. Okay. And my co-host at the time, Maddie Ballgame, I believe it was Maddie saying that he also was not a fan of I Saw the Devil. So you can see how we got that one wrong because most people who wrote in said I Saw the Devil was fantastic. And I also heard a lot of great buzz, Josh, about this movie. Talk about movies that are in my wheelhouse. I can't believe I haven't yet caught up with Actress. Last year, American documentarian Robert Green scored a big hit on the international festival circuit. With this complex blending of fact and fiction, actress Brandy Beret reveals her day-to-day struggle to live as a working actress and yet seems to be acting as herself in her own life. That sounds so great. I can't wait to check it out on Mubi, where every day their curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. And you can, just as Tom said, use their mobile app to download films to watch offline. Our listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com 
slash film spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting, where we've kept the sick, twisted origins of the show well hidden all these years, but our past is going to catch up with us this week as Josh and I revisit our top five haunted past movies. But first, a look at an all-too-real haunted past as documentary director Joshua Oppenheimer returns for another foray into troubled Indonesian history with the look of silence. You discover a new, young, vital band. Their style is innovative like nothing you can remember hearing before. Sure, there might be some familiar elements, but something about this concoction of sound seems wholly unique. What happens when they release their second album? When the band has decided they're not content to simply remake their first masterpiece, the style is less distinct, the production perhaps less flashy, the moments of revelation fewer and subtler. Intellectually, you applaud the group's yearning to evolve and expand. Emotionally, you just can't shake that initial mind-blowing experience. In case you hadn't deduced it yet, Josh, you, in this little parable, is us. The band is director Joshua Oppenheimer, and the first album is Oppenheimer's debut, 2013's Oscar-nominated The Act of Killing. Quick sidebar, 2013 was a pretty solid year for cinema. Considering I ranked Killing 6th on my list of the top 10 films of the year, you had it 4th. Oppenheimer had the audacity to offer former Indonesian death squad leaders, none of whom have ever been punished for their transgressions and, moreover, are quite proud of and still celebrated for their actions, with the opportunity to reenact their gruesome killings in Hollywood-style fantasy sequences. Surely helping to ease the pain of Oppenheimer's eventual Oscar loss, we bestowed the act of killing with our Golden Brick Award, going to our favorite non-mainstream movie made by a new or emerging filmmaker who shows a clear directorial vision and artistic ambition. In our review, you mentioned your visceral reaction, Josh, remarking that it didn't feel like any documentary you've ever seen. I called it truly a singular piece of filmmaking, with nods, though, to Morris and Herzog, practitioners and proselytizers of a truth more sublime than reality, the ecstatic truth. How does a director follow that, especially when there's still so much of that first story that needs to be told? For the look of silence, Oppenheimer returns to the same Indonesian villages and many of the same murderers, only now the Inquisitor isn't a curious investigator behind the camera, but a victim in front of the camera. Adi, a young optometrist, confronts the men who killed the brother he never met, leaving behind a traumatized mother and father to start again. Much of what we see in silence is just as harrowing and disturbing as what we witness in the act of killing, but Oppenheimer's approach is less brazen, no blending of narrative and nonfiction styles or blurring of reality and fantasy. Josh, does that make it less vital or visceral? Do you appreciate it? But deep down, do you wish silence sounded a bit more like Oppenheimer's first record? So if we're going to talk about the two films in comparison, which I think you inevitably have to, I would say it is the lesser project to me. But I do want to have our conversation move beyond that comparison and talk about The Look of Silence on its own terms, because I think there 
are some extremely compelling elements of this movie on its own. That Good, because its own attention. I have no great comparisons. I just needed to come up with a setup. <laughs> well, it'll it'll work because that that's what people are doing, and naturally, I, I think it makes sense. Now, your analogy breaks down, though. It's not really a second album. I would say it's a side B hmm. because the topic is exactly the same, and so. In that sense, the general topic, the setting, yeah. and the subjects. But it does in sound sense, completely different. Yes. Oh, it does. Yeah. Uh, and in that sense, I think we're. it is fair to spend a little bit of time comparing them. And the styles are just, com- you know, the look of silence is so intimate, bluntly intimate. It hits you in the gut, as the other film did, but in this personal way, where the act of killing was operatic Mm -hmm. in its form, in what it was going after, in the depth. And here's maybe the difference to me. The depth, it explored something like pure evil. I don't know that the look of silence gives us that depth. And I think it's partly because of the form it takes, which is a bit more conventional, having Adi be this interviewer who confronts these men in their homes, his whole manner is different. Mm-hmm. You know that he is he is Oppenheimer's stand-in in a lot of ways, but he does this in a completely different manner. Uh, not that Oppenheimer was confrontational in the act of killing. What he did was let the subjects hang themselves yeah. to a sense with his formalism. And here it's much more of a direct, I'm accusing you of this, what's your response, from this soft-spoken man, Adi. So the whole tenor of this picture is different. I'll tell you what, what I think, what I had wished is that I had encountered the look of silence first and then seen the act of killing simply because I think it would have built upon what the look of silence kind of gets around a little bit, that evil and the act of killing would have really brought to bear all of that artistry and power on it. And I something in me thinks that for me, it would have been uh, a more overall double album experience mm-hmm. better that way. Because I do think the look of silence touches on things like forgiveness very lightly, doesn't really get to the depth of those that it might want to. And the elements that it spends more time on exposing these men and what they did and how they've lived with it The Act of Killing, I think, does better. Hmm. So uh, definitely a film that will get to the reasons why it's remarkable on its own right. And as a package, if you've seen The Act of Killing, you need to see this as well because it does add that victim perspective, which the other film didn't have a lot of time for. And that gives you a whole nother idea of this time in history. But yeah, if we're comparing the two, you know, Act of Killing, I think, is the stronger piece of art. Yeah, I think I probably do as well. But you make a compelling case for this notion that maybe it would almost have been better if this was the first film, but it just seems like such an obvious progression, as you said, because of the fact that it now focuses on the victim and the victims. And I think we only could have had that. And really formally, or at least structurally, we needed the earlier perspective of the act of killing. Now, if you haven't seen it, I think you can still see the look of silence. I just think the fact that you're watching a lot of scenes and you're watching Adi watch scenes that I don't know that that footage actually made its way into the act of killing. Everything that we see here on the television screen that he's watching, or even if any parts of it did, or if this is all extra stuff that he didn't use in the act of killing. Yeah, I think this but, is extra. I don't. It didn't yeah, look familiar to me. I agree. It didn't look familiar to me either, but it could have been because we're still watching these people just 
give all their exploits. Brag of all about these, what yeah, they they're doing. bragging about the things they did, even though what they did is horrific. And also that notion, Josh, you said it about forgiveness. I really think that that wouldn't have had much place in the first film and is only a natural step after we really confront the horror. So I think it does work exactly do how he has it. Do you think the silence gives enough time to this idea of forgiveness? I do. And how it might work? I do, because I think that there's one sequence in particular where that comes out, and I felt like if it pushed that anymore, because it's in stark contradiction, actually, to some of the other characters who were victims, like Adi's parents, who they have no time for forgiveness. They feel like a lot of us might feel. I mean, at one point, I think the mom even says, I hope their children suffer. So there's this sense of revenge, and I think that's a natural instinct that Adi and Oppenheimer both want to push past. And I think if they had tried to put too fine of a point on it or make it even more about forgiveness, then it would have rang hollow, actually. Well, I don't know that the people in this film, when it was being made, were ready for forgiveness, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Adi brings it up to his mother. He's the one she says she's talking about how can they live amongst these people who did this to her son still. And Adi offers, well, may maybe we can forgive them. And yeah, you're right. The movie could not go there if its subjects were not ready for it. And I don't think they are. I do think that Adi's approach to these interviews sets the ground for this sort of forgiveness because he takes the approach of reconciliation. Yeah. That is how he is confronting is a bit of a strong word. He's definitely confronting these men, but not in the manner of revenge or vengeance, which may be what his parents would have chosen. He is seeking understanding while still holding them accountable. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new documentary, The Look of Silence. It's playing here in Chicago, has been at the Music Box. I'm not sure exactly how long it may stay over, but if you have a chance to see it, sounds like Josh and I are both recommending it. And you're right. I think that that really is the strength of this film. It's in Adi, and it's in that genuine attempt of his, a real striving to understand something that you simply can't understand that there really is no comprehending. And you look at the title, it's obvious right away. It's on some of the posters. And the first image we see is even a man who is getting his eyes tested. And as we said, Adi is an optometrist. So, of course, the title, The Look of Silence, refers to the obvious symbolism of him being an optometrist, someone who helps people to see, to have a clarity of vision. If it wasn't a documentary, Josh, we'd be here criticizing the movie for being too heavy handed to have its main character be an optometrist. This, it's just such a beautiful metaphor. Yeah, but it though. works and I don't so think great. Oppenheimer squeezes it too hard at all. Those no. glasses alone are so with the bright red coloring and they're so odd. And to have these men that they enhance the absurdity of the situation yeah. when they're wearing them. Yeah. It's a way, again, of here's a here's a section where the film, like the act of killing, does have its subjects hang themselves by making them look ridiculous right when they're being pinpointed. Mm -hmm. No, that's a good point. And I think that absurdity really comes through in that some of these people that he's helping to see will never have any moral clarity of vision. They'll never see the terrifying truth of their past deeds. And the more Adi and anyone else confronts them with the evidence to help them try to see, the more they just obfuscate and rationalize. So they're never going to see it. And that silence is their refusal to admit their guilt. And the government, of course, and society's refusal, as you said, they're still existing. They're still living around these people that committed these atrocities, and there's no punishment coming for it. More significant, though, 
the real look of silence, the real strength in this film, as I said, is in Adi and his demeanor. And it's the way we observe him being an observer. He is our witness to all of this. And whether he's watching a tape of the murderers, as we said on TV, recounting their deeds, or he's watching them face to face, he's sitting right across from them, he holds that same mostly implacable expression. It's the third image we see in the film. Our first glimpse of Adi is a close-up of him looking, of him watching something. And that's the image that's going to recur most in this film. I think he almost absorbs all of our righteous anger as the viewer and our indignation. He takes it for us. We transfer it to him and he holds it because, as we said, he's not out for revenge ultimately. He knows that revenge will solve nothing. And that silence, that ability to listen and take it all in and let there be some awkward moments between him and the person he's talking to. It's both a shrewd interviewing technique because he makes them stew in it. And a lot of times that provokes them to say something else that maybe they wouldn't have said otherwise and reveal something. But you also get a sense looking at that expression of his inability to wrap his head around what he's seeing and hearing. As we said, it's incomprehensible ultimately. So it's one thing to be aware of a genocide, to know the facts of it. I think it's another thing entirely to confront it head on. And when we see him, confront it head on in those close-ups and as he watches and he hears these stories every little gesture every slight deviation in his facial expression whether he's gulping for air just so subtly or he's taking a deeper breath Swallow, whatever yeah. yeah swallowing it takes on meaning and it resonates here in this film you can see why oppenheimer gave him this responsibility and let him be his stand-in mm-hmm. because the man has that implacable exterior yes but he also as you said is very smart now how much of this is intentional and how much of this is just a natural shock and the silence is like all right. he can offer mm-hmm. or is it a very clever interviewing technique because it works. And yes, here we have the other, the flip side of what the title means, right? It's Adi's silence as much as the silence of the perpetrators. So I think that the decision, that's one of the distinctive markers of this film is is Oppenheimer's decision to hand the reins over Mm -hmm. to his main subject and how well that works out in putting us one step closer to this experience. Mm -hmm. We can thankfully have no idea of what it would be like to learn of all this about your family members. But we're a little bit closer because it is Adi on camera asking the questions, not so much Oppenheimer. Not that he was a huge presence in the other film. I believe we could hear him in the act of killing. And we hear that once or twice here in this film. Once or twice we do hear him as well here. I think, you know, we should also give due to uh, aspects of the film like the cinematography so that we're not, it's more conventional than the act of killing, but it is not routine. I agree. Uh, Oppenheimer spends a lot of time in the jungle or countryside settings that have this quiet This peacefulness, Mm -hmm. which obviously is at odds with what we're learning about, but also there's a haunting element to that, and uh, that plays in well with the theme, too. And just spending some time with Adi's parents, who are – I forget how old, but they don't really even know. No, they don't. At one point, they're estimating 100 for his father. (laughs) Yeah, he has an ID that suggests he's 103, though the mom says he has to easily be 140, Right, which (laughs) they've been married a long time. So let's say somewhere in between. Yeah. (laughs) But her care for him and the daily routine – where he's he's blind at this point, I believe, or almost completely blind, and needs their help for anything. And we get a real sense for the rhythm of life 
in this place, in this family, Adi's children, who are maybe seven to ten, yeah. something like that. A son and a daughter. Oh, thank goodness there are just these breakaway scenes of those kids giggling and being kids. I agree. Because the movie may have been unbearable without that. I don't know that The Act of Killing has much like that. That's maybe, true. Maybe that's why it's just the more draining of the two films, too. Uh, but they just give us little elements of it, – it's both a relief – and a heartrending irony that these kids are growing up playing in this community that is still being rent apart by these past sins mm-hmm. and the fact that the perpetrators ha- are living with their victims. And, and what is that going to be for these kids if there is no truth, there is no reconciliation before they grow up? Yeah, and still going to a school where they're being taught all the old lies. Yeah, the scenes in the school. In contrast to everything, of course, that he's trying to teach them at home and he's trying to bring to light. I'm going to agree with you and disagree with you, though, on a couple things. First, even though I ultimately appreciated getting to know the mother and father as much as we do and really understanding their point of view as victims. I mean, obviously, Adi is a victim, but at its core, the mother and father who lost their son. He was not deal. born. Yeah, he, he was not born, born when his brother was killed. He didn't killed. know his brother. That's still a loss, but it's not a loss on the level of a mother and father who actually watched their son come back to them, having been torn apart by knives and oh, the been deta- attacked. The yeah, you hear of the details. That and then brutal. he's taken away, and they never see him again, and they only hear stories about what happened to him. That's a different kind of loss altogether. But there was a part of me as the movie went on, and we could talk about specific moments, but this will diminish it more than I want to, but I felt a little bit like I was watching suffering porn. There was some shots of the father in particular who really does need a lot of care, and at one point he's sort of just stuck in a room kind of talking to the that's wall. That's the one. Yeah, that's the one. That is the one. I already had the feeling leading up to it, but that's the one that put me over the top where it felt gratuitous. It, it went beyond... What I got out of the other scenes, which really was trying to give us this sense of the psychic toll and the trauma that these events had on them. But that scene pushed it beyond that realm into something that I didn't know why Oppenheimer felt the need to show us those images. I think it's important to to pull that scene out. Essentially, the father we understand struggles from some sort of confusion at the very least we can say. And this is a scene where he's in a room and without a wheelchair, he can't move on his own. So he's dragging himself around the room and seems to be deluded, not knowing where he is, Mm -hmm. though he is in a room in his home and he seems to be crawling, looking for a door. So he comes up against one wall and feels around and cries out. And this goes on. I don't know how long actually it feels like minutes. I'm sure it's shorter. Yeah, it was probably 30 seconds. But you want someone to come to his aid. And there are other sequences. His helplessness is a through line through the movie. Yes. But in other sequences, his wife usually or someone is there with him to at least care for him. Right. So I was waiting for one of them to come in. I right. was waiting for something to happen to understand the presence of the scene. And it's it's not there. Uh, no, it just it's cuts not. Away. And also as a reflection, you know, if, if it's supposed to echo his distress over what has happened to his family, that connection isn't no, clear too in that far scene either. So I would agree with you on that. It's one of those instances, you know, here's a documentary philosophy question. When does the filmmaker, and we asked this about the act of killing, I yes, believe, we did. when does the filmmaker mm-hmm. step in and feel, now in there, it's a much larger question. When, when does he step in and try to do something about these people who have gotten away with things, whatever stepping in means? Here, it's very practical. When does he step in and, and put a hand on the father's shoulder and, and say, 
I'm here, you're home. You know, I don't know or why. Just I don't know what I would to do. show it to us. Or choose not to use the footage because yeah. perhaps there was family all around and it was like 20 seconds and it's conflated in our memory now. Yeah. But it brings to mind the other reservation I did have about the look of silence. And it's one of the scenes in particular, Adi's, Adi's conversations with the perpetrators. There are various people. And there's one where the perpetrator himself has died. So he's meeting with the wife and the man's sons. And it did have the feel, though the structure is very much the same as the other conversations. He, he's not any more confrontational. Uh, he's not any more aggressive. He has that same quiet demeanor. But they seem to realize the conversation has taken a turn. Yeah, and they're more and antagonized they're, by it. They are, and, mm-hmm. and they want the conversation to stop. They, the mother asks for the camera to be cut off at one point, and the sons, one of the sons says something about, I invited you here as a friend, Adi, and now you've tricked me. And this goes back to that same question in terms of uh, the philosophy of your documentary style is at what point are you it, – it felt to me like a Michael Moore gotcha moment. Is, is that is, a bad thing? Well, I don't know that it's a bad thing because you can say these people have been living off their late father slash killer's reputation and they are clearly better off in this society because of what their late father – because of the evil acts their right. late father did. So in a sense, are they guilty? But if Oppenheimer resorted to Michael Moore type tactics, are you saying that is inherently a bad thing? This is what I'm asking. I'm okay. not sure. This is why this scene troubled me is because I do believe that the end game here is a Righteous one, what Adi was trying to do. And I don't know that it's wrong, but I think it is less inventive and less revealing of a method than, say, the way the scenes played out for sure in the act of killing, where somehow it was the framing and allowing the the, the perpetrators again to to kind of expose themselves than it is to get someone in a room and Keep the camera rolling. And I would compare it to, okay, think about some of Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report, some of his videos where he'd go out and interview someone and frame the conversation in a way so that they would walk themselves right through the trap that he yes. set up. The Daily Show, common technique in the video interviews. Those are ways of creating a situation more creatively, and I would I would put the act of killings documentary style in that category. Yeah, I would where, too. Where you're very using, where you're using different tactic. And the one with this family here that I'm talking about in The Look of Silence stood apart from the others because it seemed like it was forcing that moment in a way that wasn't as elegant. So there's an aesthetic issue maybe I have with it, but also fundamentally, it wasn't as revealing either, Mm. I think, because of that. I see your point, but I really appreciated that sequence. And the reason why is because it felt like the inevitable place that even this unflappable, though horrified Adi, had to end up. There are so many sequences where, even though we appreciate him absorbing all of our anger and being rational and calm and having this conversation and being so understanding, or at least trying to understand, he's seeking that. At some point, and this is late in the film, this is really the last confrontation, I felt like that was just the progression this needed to go. I needed, as a viewer, that relief of him pushing back a little bit, not just asking the questions, but really openly being as hostile as he can be. He's really not hostile, but he is more hostile in this sequence. And I just don't think that the act of killing style 
approach that you're saying is better. It might be better, but the fact is it was more appropriate for the act of killing. It's not more appropriate for Adi. And the thing is, I don't think that Oppenheimer is doing anything to rig the situation. I think that that is just how it played out. I absolutely believe that's how it played out. His anger there being different than all the other sequences. And that's the other thing, Josh, is because they're more antagonistic, that raises the tenor of the whole thing, the kids and the mom. But also, there's just a certain sense that you have to realize that these are, even though they're not the people, it's just their father and the husband, and he's not there to answer for his crimes. The fact is they're his representatives, and they are the representatives of the man who actually physically did the killing on his brother. That man is different. No, I know you're saying you get it, but I'm saying I get it. I get it even... In terms of it being an aesthetic choice, if it is one, I get it there, too, and I appreciate it because his situation is different than the other situations because he's the man. That man that they're talking about is the one who actually physically committed those crimes to his brother. And also, we just watched, as Adi did, footage of the wife standing there on camera next to her husband as he's showing the world his book. Right, that, right. That that's, has, that's the Michael Moore technique, Yeah, that's right? it. You, yeah. It's there. But then on camera now, she's saying, I don't know anything about this book. And you know what? I wanted Adi to push her on that a little bit. And I'm glad he did. And I'm glad it went there. Even if in some way she's a tragic figure, too. Maybe she is. Maybe she isn't. But I liked that moment. And I'll just say, too. It's funny that we're we're sort of complaining or or we're discussing this notion of of ethics in terms of even a character at one point says to him to shut off the camera and he doesn't. And I think about, well, thank goodness he didn't. The history of documentary cinema. Think about how less rich it would be if every filmmaker turned off their camera as soon as any subject said to them, I don't want you to film this or turn it off. He doesn't do that. And his instincts are right there. But this but does time, he, so, but does he get something there when he doesn't turn it off? I, I agree with mm-hmm. you that that's you cannot be a documentary filmmaker if you're going to turn it off every time someone tells you to turn it off. But does he get? Let's take the act of killing out, throw it out. We're not talking about that. Great. But I think that Oppenheimer uses different techniques, and Adi perhaps uses different techniques in an earlier conversation that for me was just as evocative in terms of nailing someone down. And that's when it's with the man who's wearing those optical lenses, the test ones that are is the iconic image for the film. I would say that that is also a gotcha moment, but somehow it's using the visuals of those lenses, as I talked about. It's and more it literal. Lets, it lets the camera roll after the man is comfortable. So it's doing something similar. But there, and, and that revealed to me, it made that guy squirm just as much as the family in the later sequence squirmed. But there was just a little bit more of artistic elegance to it. I guess that's all it is for me. Maybe there was, but I think it's representative, as we've said, that this film overall is more literal, so it makes sense that that confrontation would be less poetic and more literal. And also, Josh, I'll be honest with you, one of the things I did feel, as much as I appreciated this movie, and I really did, it had a huge impact on me, and I thought it was very powerful, but there was a certain redundancy in a lot of the encounters. Yes, there are little new wrinkles and new information revealed, and each character ultimately shed some different light on what they were involved in. But they also have a lot of the same exact lines, and the confrontations go the exact same way. So I like that this confrontation went somewhere a little bit deeper. On the ethical note, I do want to just point out, I think it's ironic a little bit, that one of the complaints, it wasn't even so much, I think, with Oppenheimer and the act of killing, that he stood back, though we did talk about that, and maybe he should have actually intervened at certain times. But the larger question was that he did do the Stephen Colbert thing where did he really 
make his intentions known to these people? And did he have some responsibility to when he gets them to act these things out? Did they have any sense right. of how that would be twisted later? And then again, the larger question is, does that matter? Do these monsters need to have that kind of assurance? Do we owe that to them in some way? Here, the irony is that instead of not being forthright with the people he's talking to and them not maybe knowing his judgment, he has someone out there in front actually being, as we've said, his mouthpiece who is asking the questions, who is actually challenging them. So this time he's not, he's not right. hiding behind it as much because he has someone who's there to actually ask those pointed, troubling questions. And that's why I wanted to get to my favorite, though that sounds like a really bad word to choose, my favorite scene in the film. And I go back to The Act of Killing. That movie had so many memorable scenes in it, whether memorable means because they were revealing, they were disturbing, whatever. The one that we both singled out, I think it ended up making my favorite scenes of the year, was the one where the actor comes in and he's talking to all these murderers and he's kind of like, hey, I'm your buddy and I want to be kind of like you and I want to joke around. And then he ends up telling the story of his grandfather's murder and it becomes more and more awkward and uncomfortable. And you realize that maybe as much as he keeps saying, hey, I'm joking around, maybe he's not joking around at all. And what he's saying really is horrifying. That's what the act of killing kind of was a dance. That scene was a microcosm of that entire film. Here, it's the scene with the region general, the one who basically says, yeah, I ordered all this stuff. I signed off on 500 to 600 killings. I'm responsible. Or at least when he says, so you're responsible, he doesn't deny it. And then when Adi finally says to him, as so many other people do. Well, my brother was one of the men who was killed. He immediately retreats into, well, I didn't kill them. I didn't actually physically kill them. So like all these other guys, he basically was proud of his deeds, but then immediately goes into denial mode that they did anything wrong. And they say the same things about the past is the past. And why are you dredging it up? But then the scene takes that turn where he then asks Adi a question, where did your brother live? Which subdistrict? And Adi is savvy enough to know that He might be asking him, where is your family now? Where do you guys live now? And he won't tell him. And he has those lines. There are subversives everywhere. Maybe this, what we're doing right here, is communist activity. That whole exchange where then Adi says, what would have happened if I had come to you like this back in 65? And he says, you couldn't have imagined what would have happened. And it becomes this direct threat. He says to him, so keep going. He says, so keep going with a twinkle in his eye. That is There's really a, the stuff that, that this whole terror is made of. The fact that it isn't just the past. We can watch right. it and think as bad as it is that these characters are still alive and they're still celebrated and they haven't been punished in any way, when the reality is that they can that quickly turn it to, we're still in power, you're still under our thumb, and if we perceive you to be subversive in any way, guess what? We can do it all over again. That's where it gets really scary. And that is a distinctive, I would say, of the look of silence, is that it gives a very present sense of menace. Even though in the act of killing, we were seeing men in the present talk about their contemporary pride, Mm -hmm. it was largely about things in the past. Here, because Adi is our eyes and ears, Mm -hmm. and because of scenes like that, where you still sense the threat, it is very contemporary in how much it scares you. Yeah, I said I was going to agree and disagree with you on something earlier. I didn't get to the thing I was going to agree on, and that is the imagery, how evocative it is here. To suggest that just because this film is more literal and less poetic 
than the act of killing, maybe less audacious. That doesn't mean it's still not daring in some formal ways. And I really do think it comes through. You said it in the landscapes, in the way nature is captured, the way people in nature are captured. I'm even thinking of the little details, like when he cuts to as his mom is working and we see the dirt and the leaves that are attached to her feet, which I don't know how much I want to read into it, but it just it evoked in me this sense of Man, they really have been here for They've 100 years. They've been there a years. long time. They are yep. part of this. It's it's literally part of them. They've lived in the history. They're still living with the history. I think that's important to yes. recognize that they, you know, this isn't like say in the US where someone wants uh, to change their life, they get up and they move to another city. Yeah. This is all his parents have known is right. this area and they've lived with these perpetrators since the acts of violence, and they're still there. And I think details like that really drive it home. I think also that contrast, despite the suffering of this country, of these people, the way Oppenheimer shoots the trees, the fruit, the vegetables when they're cutting, it was as if it's meant to stand in stark contrast to the horror and the fact that beauty can still exist and they still are living in this world. They are still a part of it. And even though that past is still haunting them, beauty can somehow still flourish. And I think they are... They are trying to take some solace in that, and his imagery really does capture that. So there's probably a lot more we could say about this film. I do, just real quick, want to throw out another plug for a movie I've promoted a couple times before on the show that I did mention in our Active Killing review in 2013, but really is much closer as a companion, not to the Active Killing, but to this movie. It's a 2009, I believe, documentary, 2009 documentary called Enemies of the People. And it's about Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge and their purge of subversives and communists. And very similar, Josh, a movie where a man lost his mother, father and brother in those purges. He seeks out the men who have never been punished and confronts them. And actually, at one point, kind of befriends the guy who was the number two guy to Pol Pot. Really, one of the key guys responsible for a lot of these atrocities and They kind of befriend each other. And you can imagine then what that confrontation is like. So a great companion to this film if you get a chance to see Enemies of the People. The Look of Silence, again, I think just finishing up a run here in Chicago at the Music Box, but it is scheduled to open in cities around the country through mid-October. A release schedule along with more info on the film is available at thelookofsilence.com. If you've seen the film and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. A very special bilingual edition of Massacre Theater is up next. Adam, I hope you have Google Translate ready. Then we'll share some brief thoughts on Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which we recorded while hanging off a plane underwater and holding our breath for three minutes. Take that, Tom Cruise. Stay with us. Oh, I used to be some divine child
Mickey, tell me, just... Mickey, don't be afraid to hurt my feelings. Tell me what you want me to be, how you want me to be. I can be that. I can be anything. You tell me, Mickey. You're perfect just the way you are, Jenna Rollins. It's not you. It's us. This is Film Spotting. The great Jenna Rollins there in a clip from 1974's A Woman Under the Influence, directed by Rollins' husband at the time, John Cassavetes. It's been kind of a humiliating week here on Film Spotting as we receive mountains of critical response to the poll question we posed last week when we asked you to name your favorite director-muse pairing. It was a poll we hastily and ignorantly cobbled together in anticipation of next week's review of Mistress America. This is the new movie from writer-director Noah Baumbach and his current muse-slash-co-writer-slash-star-slash-girlfriend Greta Gerwig. That poll, which I hope at first glance struck you as perfectly satisfactory, featured the following options. Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. We had Woody and Mia Farrow, Ingmar Bergman and Liv Ullman, Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman, and David Lynch and Laura Dern. And... It resulted, Josh, in emails like this from Terry in Toronto. Pardon me for my ridiculousness, but I've been trying to come to terms with your latest poll question for hours. I mean, what is supposed to be the through line in the choice of these pairings? There are a couple husband and wife combos like Woody and Mia and Rossellini Bergman. But then where is Fellini Messina and Godard Carina? Then again, Bergman and Ullman also had a toward love affair that resulted in a baby out of wedlock. If this is supposed to be a list of directors and muses rising to the pinnacle of their careers, then I would say Bergman and Rossellini had already reached that mark before these muses had entered their lives. Valid. The most perplexing pairing of them all seems to be Lynch and Dern, who only combined for three films with the best of them, Blue Velvet, being a film where Dern is an integral but supporting player. And I think Terry had a lot more, but he closed simply with this. I vote for a redo. (laughs) One quick correction on Terry. I'm pretty sure that Woody and Mia were never married. Maybe close to married, maybe common law in some states, but I don't believe they were actually ever officially married. So Terry demands a redo. Many others demanded a redo. And Josh, you know what? Sam and I talked about it. We're just going to spring this on you right here on the show. This is a live production meeting. We decided for the first time in the show's history, we're going to toss out the old poll and do it again. We're going to get it right this time. You're opening a can of worms I know, here. I know. Are you ready? And Are here's you the thing. prepared to deal with what this means? No, because here's the thing. What happens if we get it wrong again? Then we look even dumber. And I guarantee you the same pairing that's dominating this poll is going to dominate the new poll. So it really, truly would have been all for nothing. Would you say that this is the most misguided poll in film spotting history? I mean, I know sometimes you'll look back on them. And, and I have to say, I'm take some blame for this. I was involved in this one. A lot of times I don't jump in on the poll emails because I think those <laughs> are go possibly on on. the longest email chain of any production element in the show. <laughs> and yet people should just know that we do make mistakes. <laughs> so I usually just kind of step away from that and let you and Sam and look have what happened. Fun. This time I got involved. I suggested uh, one pairing and that didn't work. It didn't even work. Didn't make the cut. And uh, yeah, so I, I apologize as well. Hey, I'm I'm fine with this, but Mostly because I will also be stepping out of all the email chains when you're going to be debating every week after the complaints. Well, do we redo this one, too? No, no. I don't think we can really screw it up as badly as we did this. This is poll. the worst I mean, it's if ever this been, is the first time we've ever. Yeah, we've decided to humor our audience and go ahead and redo it and try to get okay. it right. I mean, first time in 550 shows. Hey, I think these are very valid points that they these are. emailers are making. They are. So. Okay. The options, Josh, you read them. Our new and improved options are Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. They are still there. How about Michelangelo, Antonioni, and Monica Vitti? 
new contenders, Ingmar Bergman, Liv Ullmann, John Cassavetes, Jenna Rollins, Federico Fellini, Julieta Messina, Jean-Luc Godard, Anna Karenna, and Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman. So we That's did a keep much a few of them. List. It really is. I mean, especially when I did point this out on Twitter when these emails and these comments started coming in that I'm the guy who has a poster in my basement of Monica Vitti and Alain Delon from Antonioni's Laeclis. I love Monica Vitti. Never occurred to me to think to include her in this poll. I actually wasn't familiar with the fact. I wasn't sure that she and Antonioni ever actually had a romantic affair, which is part of this poll, but it turns out they did. So I'm glad she's there. And I've got to say, too, something in my gut never quite felt right that there were two Woody options. Yeah, of course. I wasn't about to fight you on that battle because I knew I would never win. Sam, you know what? But that was a sign we were we didn't have things lined up. You know what? See, I disagree with you because and it's not because of my Woody fandom here. Sam, actually, I'm not blaming him because I agree with him. I'm just pointing out he was the one who really pushed for both Woody and Diane Keaton and Woody and Mia because it just didn't seem right that you could have Diane Keaton and Woody Allen, who are winning this poll, by the way, in dominant fashion, but not have Mia Farrow, who they made Hannah and her sisters and the Purple Rose of Cairo and seven other movies. That was a really formidable collaboration. So we stand by that. But yes, we did remove Woody and Mia to satisfy those outraged commenters who just couldn't believe that we had two Woody options but left out some of those others. We did exclude as well Lynch and Dern this time because they were professionally linked, but as far as we know, not personally linked. And that and is a tie-in Inland to, Empire really is to Baumbach back and Gerwig. And you're good. right. Inland Empire is an experience. There are a few others we probably could have considered as well. I mean, technically, Joel Cohen and Francis McDormand belong in this list. Jules Dassin and a Greek actress, Melina Mercori. I'm sure we are leaving out others who belong there, but we are not going to read. Well, we'll just do it in version three. That's okay. No, no, we won't. Send your emails to Phil's fine. (laughs) Again, Keaton and Woody Allen winning by a wide margin. And my gut is they're still going to win by a wide margin. But hey, you demanded it and you got it. We gave it to you, Film Spotting Nation. Vote now, please, at filmspotting.net. Results from both polls will be shared on next week's show. And if you leave a comment, please let us know where you're listening from. If you're going to harangue us and harass us, we really want to know what city you're from. A few notes, Josh, that we did want to share. It was announced this past week, and we shared the love on social media a little bit over at Film Spotting on Twitter. Satyajit Ray's Apu Trilogy is going to be released. We knew this was coming. We touched on it at the end of our Ray Marathon, but the Apu Trilogy is going to be released by Criterion on Blu-ray in November. You can listen to our six-film, five-part Ray Marathon from earlier this year over at filmspotting.net. Just click on the Marathons tab at the top of the page. We sort of liked those, didn't we? We loved them, and just... Just seeing the artwork for Apu and the world of Apu, I actually, just thinking about the world of Apu again made me a little teary-eyed. It's that moving. Probably the highlight of my movie year, yeah. Okay, so we're probably overselling it, but actually we're not. The films are that good. Keep an eye for those if you are looking for a great Christmas gift for you or another cinephile in your life. We have a ticket giveaway as well. This week, A Walk in the Woods. This is an adaptation of Bill Bryson's popular memoir documenting his attempt to hike the Appalachian Trail. It stars Robert Redford, Nick Nolte, and the great Emma Thompson. At the end of this month, August 31st, there's going to be an advanced screening. It's a Monday night, 7 p.m. at the Landmark here in Chicago. So for our Chicago-based listeners, you can enter to win free tickets to that advanced screening. Just go to filmspotting.net for more information. Also, we never talked about this on the show. We haven't really had a chance because we haven't plugged our app because we haven't done bonus content in a long time. We haven't really done it over the summer as we've been taking a What's little bit of a break. Bonus content. Yeah, exactly. 
I like that attitude, Josh. We, used to we should just not content. resuscitate it. But our app has actually been finally, after years and years of old artwork, it finally got updated. You're actually a host on the show now, Josh. I don't really? know if you, you knew this. Well, but it's, it's official. Yeah, it's official now as of <laughs> about two months ago. Can people find the bonus content? Because that was always the problem. That's right? always a hard where, part, too. Where do I, what little, what was it, an E or something? It's an E. It's is an it e still an extra. E? I think it is. I think it is. Oh, man. So, I'm so sorry. We upped, you should have just left my name off. It's really just a new graphic that part. and a new background. So I don't want to oversell that either. But the newly redesigned film spotting app is where you'll find occasionally some extra little bits of audio. And I was thinking this week, Josh, if we're up to it, we'll see. We would share a little bit of Dr. Shivago feedback. We will discuss how Josh got Omar Sharif's performance completely wrong. Well, that sounds great. And how one listener used the movie in college to land a husband. She she probably stared him into submission with like, like watery, quivering eyes. How and he dare just, you? He just said, I, I do. How dare you? With that, let's move on to some truly bad acting. Not Omar Sharif-style acting. Some bad acting. It's what we call Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly. You get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. Boris. Yes? I have a confession to make. Yes? Ever since you and I were little children... I've been in love with your brother, Ivan. That's only that. Ivan? You're kidding. He can barely write his name in the ground with a stick. He has true animal magnetism. Animal magnetism? All that talk about some perfect love and you're hot for Ivan? He kissed me. Any place I should know? It warmed the cockles of my heart. That's just great. Nothing like hot cockles. I think he's going to ask me to marry him. But he's a gambler and a drinker. He's got a Neanderthal mentality. Don't get me wrong, I love him like a brother, just not one of mine. That's Woody Allen as Boris and Diane Keaton as Sonia in 1975's Love and Death, written and directed by Allen. A couple weeks back, we did put to rest a film that was long the subject of derision and the butt of our jokes. It's really sad to see it go. What are we going to hammer and just, I know, just we gotta beat find to death? Something. Dr. Shivago, in honor of the film's 50th anniversary and the June death of star Omar Sharif, we gave the film a special blind spotting review of film. It turns out we thought was very much worth our time and one that made for, hopefully, a pretty good conversation. That review, along with the revisit of the top five small moments in big movies, can be found in episode 549 in the Film Spotting Archives. But we got to get to a little bit of feedback on that performance, especially because I did go for it. I did it, try I to do it by Woody is, Allen. This is your breakout performance. Well, we'll see what the listeners said here, Josh. Ben in Lincoln Square here in Chicago. Adam sounded like Woody Allen had a stroke. And was learning to speak again by watching his Come old on. movies. That's not Is that a compliment? No, that's not fair. That's, that, okay. We're better than that. <laughs> Michael Roche in Leonia, New Jersey said, Adam's tour de force performance as Woody Allen was truly something to behold. Perhaps none of the Allen surrogates cast in his Allenless films has captured the level of subtlety and nuance in Allen's stutter. Bravo. The obvious tie-in is, of course, that you can watch the entire Allen catalog in the time it takes to finish Dr. Shivago. I think you were a fair Alan stand-in. I, okay. I put you somewhere between, let's see, maybe not as bad as Will Ferrell, not as good as Jason Biggs. Mm, okay. So, uh, I'll take you're that. Right. For, for a first-time effort. Yeah, and I am just as neurotic as Woody Allen, so it works. Josh Ashenmiller from Los Angeles had an idiosyncratic tie-in. Adam's game impersonation of Woody Allen's neurotic protagonist reminded me of my own attempts, which usually involved the scene from Annie Hall in which Allen's character is summoned to Annie's apartment in the middle of the night to kill a spider in the bathroom. He doesn't, but he discovers an issue of National Review, which prompts him to tease Annie, why don't you call William F. Buckley to kill your spider? This week's episode had a brief preview of the new Buckley v. 
versus Gore Vidal documentary, Best of Enemies. That's right. I did promote that. And there you go, a tie-in to Woody Allen and Diane Keaton in Annie Hall. Final bit of commentary here from Seth Gross in Santa Monica, California. The connection is that, like this episode's blind-spotting entry, Dr. Zhivago, Love and Death is a sweeping romantic period piece set against the backdrop of Russia's turbulent history. Another connection can be found in that the two leading actresses of these films, Julie Christie in Zhivago and Diane Keaton in Love and Death, were both romantically linked to Warren Beatty at one time. But then again, you could say the same thing about 75% of the actresses in Hollywood between the years 1960 and 1990. Seth continues, as far as Adam's impression of his muse, Woody Allen, I believe Josh is being too hard on his gentle co-worker. You were last time. (laughs) You've You've now turned the corner after you heard... I think I said you nailed two of the lines. Okay, that's it. And you it. had, what, eight? See? And and we get Seth here saying he believed oh, I nailed okay. more than two lines. Yeah, that's exactly what I said, apparently. While Adam's Brooklyn by way of Iowa-New York accent was, on occasion, a bit unsteady, it was not a complete disaster. I'd agree, Seth. Many great actors who have appeared in Allen's films have found their performances inconsistently tethered to the woodman's halting and neurotic pattern of speech. Witness Kenneth Branagh's Irish inflected with a schmear of Yiddish line readings as Lee Simon, the Woody Allen stand-in in Celebrity, or John Cusack's performance as David Shane in Bullets Over Broadway, which played like the period piece love child of Lloyd Dobler and Alvy Singer. No Adam did just fine considering the formidable talents that have swung for the fences and fouled out when pinch hitting for Mr. Allen. Now here's where it gets good, Josh. Here's where it gets good. But Josh's Diane Keaton? Sigh. I expected more from this usually steady performer. Sounded like he was doing Adam's go-to effeminate voice rather than trying to breathe life into an impression of a performer who is almost as easy to character as Woody Allen. Maybe he was afraid that two big performances would suck the air out of the room. Either way, love, love, and death, and your show. Well, thank you, Seth. Yeah, he's he's right. I dropped the ball <laughs> That's on it? that one. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you really just recognized that... You had to play off me and let me go big, and you didn't want to chew the scenery. But... I, did, I did want to give you the spotlight, but I, I probably could have upped it a little bit. All right. Well, thank you to everyone who entered Massacre Theater. Maybe my impression did work, Josh, because it was one of the most entered Massacre Theaters in a long time. Never would have guessed that for this film. Yeah. Reach in and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Joseph Erickson from Everett, Washington. Congratulations, Joseph. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. <laughs> Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like he said quite a bit more than that. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. We will tell you that the tie-in is directly our top five haunted past movies, but that's all you're going to get. Though we probably do need to provide a disclaimer up front that we are about to set back diplomatic relations Don't with say a certain with country. Don't say I won't say with who because I want to see what country people guess based on our our translation and rendition of this. We're going to set it back to pre-World War II days. We also have no idea what it is we're really saying. No. Do you not realize at all, that? Which is going to so, make it very hard for me to perform because I really got to know, yeah, you know what I'm after. and I'll be just fine. <laughs> okay. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Wait, give me a minute. Okay. And action. What are you looking at? I heard you inside. What? The consulate. I heard you talking. I thought maybe we could help each other. How's that? You need money. I need a ride. Out of here. I'm not running a car service just now. Thank you. I'll give you $10,000 if you drive me to Paris. Ich bin ein Ich bin ein Nick What is this, joke? Some kind of scam? No, it's no scam. I'll give you another 10 when we get there. Is that for you? Look, you drive, I pay. It's that simple. Scheiße, I got enough trouble, okay? Okay. Can I have my money back? And 
Scene. That was smooth. We did okay. Oh, I mean, yeah. we said nothing. It was gibberish, but but I we didn't have to. I think we're lucky if we said nothing. We may have said we didn't something have to do very take. insulting. Yeah, no kidding. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. If you're listening on the radio or around the time this show was posted, you've got two weeks. Your deadline is Monday, August 31st. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit ikbikenaktubichoyesden. I want you to choose your next words very carefully. Where is Hunt? We've never met before, right? Follow me. Benji. Ethan, where are you? The Syndicate is real. A rogue nation trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. A clip there from Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. This is a movie that was discussed a couple weeks ago here on the show by our former Dissolvers, Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias. And certainly they did the movie justice. I don't know that we really need to say anything more about it. But Josh, as it turns out, randomly, we both caught this film unbeknownst to each other. This past Saturday night, I was at the drive-in back in Iowa, took my kids, not the best family-friendly movie, but it's what was playing. Yeah, we did something similar. Okay. You saw it as well, and since you are the more professional critic than I am, you, of course, wrote a proper review of the movie over at your website, LarsonOnFilm.com. I wrote just a brilliant review over at Letterboxd.com. It was so much fun. And I'll be honest, that's the extent of what I have to say about this movie. My thoughts really do fall in line, mostly with what Scott and Genevieve said. I think it's great. I really, really like this film. I don't think it's quite as good as the Brad Bird-directed Ghost Protocol, the best in the series, but this is the second best in the series by far. Christopher McQuarrie and his direction, some of the casting choices. Simon Pegg is great again. Ilsa Faust, that character played by Rebecca Ferguson, loved her. Can't Ferguson wait to is see. A standout. Yeah, yeah, can't wait to see more Mission Impossible entries. So I'm all in on this movie. But as I said, you actually wrote about it. So tell everybody why it's good. Yeah, Ferguson, her character. I I love the move she has where she can like within half a second be on top of her assailant's shoulders yes. and, and like take him out from there. And the dress she wears in the opera. Sequence. A mm-hmm. lot of people have been talking about that opera sequence there. It, Cruz is there to take out three assassins. Like, they keep popping up. There's more he has to deal with. It's it's really well staged. Yeah. But that dress that she wears is like, it's like this melted butter thing that just keeps going. And they they use that for the scenes as well, both when she attacks someone and when, well, I don't want to give away, but but it's it's really a standout sequence. And there are a couple of them. In this film, and I think that's what you want in an action movie like this is to give you those sequences that play within the narrative itself, but also stand on their own as set pieces. And it opens with, I mean, that that one with him hanging on the plane. Yeah. What's so fun about that and what I like about where Cruz is at lately and that this movie takes advantage of is a certain self-awareness yes. about the franchise and not only about him as a screen presence, but also his reputation is persona as a star. So people joke about Tom Cruise running all the time. That's the first thing it we see. It opens with it. It's the brilliant. first thing we see. and it, But it's also a deflation of the franchise, which has always dealt on 
gadgets and technology and infiltration and and those elements are there here too well but this opening scene they deflate that because That's none true. of those things are working they're trying to get this cargo plane yeah. remote all their technology is failing exactly them. so what do they fall back on well tom cruise running jumping clinging and of course grinning you right. know he has this great grin at the end of that sequence so right there you know you're in for some good fun christopher mcquarrie directing here and writing as well so the complicated plot i think clicks into place. Yeah, me too. As you would expect. Mm-hmm. But but as I said, he he also handles uh, the action scenes quite well. So, yeah, I mean, would I have thought that I needed a sixth Mission Impossible film in my life? Probably not. And I'd probably survive without one. But I'm with you. I'm looking forward to the next one, especially if they keep Ferguson around. So we managed two reviews, but we don't have a new top five this week. So when we come back, it's a revisit of our 2012 list of the best haunted past movies. Which dubious Robert Zemeckis film will I pick this time? Stay with us. to get to a couple donations and thank yous here in a moment but first a note about our featured artists you're hearing the aches from their april 2015 ep your broken hand listener colin flanagan wrote in and josh we listened to his email and to his music and here you go i've been a longtime listener to film spotting and listening to you guys talk about good films and bad got me through a lot of long college papers and longer lonelier commutes to and from campus That was a while back, and though I've fallen off the wagon a bit as a listener, I'm very much looking forward to catching up and seeing what new gems you two have uncovered for me to view, now that I'm working a job that allows for listening to podcasts while I work. Anyway, as much as I'd like to praise you guys for a few more paragraphs, I'm writing with another motive in mind. My band, The Aches, just released a new EP about a week and a half ago, and after meeting Sam, sort of by chance a few days before the release, he suggested that we send it to you and ask you to consider it for use on a future show. I would be totally thrilled if you're interested, especially since your show is based in Chicago and we're a Chicago-slash-Milwaukee band, you know, by local and all that. Thanks so much again for showcasing great films and not being too hard on bad ones. You made a young film nerd believe. Well, thanks for the note, Colin. Obviously, we were a few months late on this as this email came to us back in April or May, but better late than never. Best of luck to you and the group. Also wanted to share a note here from longtime listener Nigel Smith of the Tufnell Park Film Club. And yes, I will continue to comment every time on how his name is Nigel and he lives in Tufnell Park in London. He brings up that, you know, recently I plugged the You Must Remember This podcast, Karina Longworth, that great show and that Manson series that just had me so enthralled. Turns out Nigel did an interview with Karina about the show. If you're curious to check that out. We are here plugging it for you, Nigel. You can find the direct link in our show notes at filmspotting.net. 
We also got this note, Josh, from David L. Williams, and he writes to us from Belfont, Pennsylvania. David, another longtime listener of the show, supporter of the show, and as you'll hear in a moment, has actually been featured during one of our top five lists. And I just loved this little email. It's great hearing these stories about film spotters coming together out, as David says, in the wild. For the last two years, I've been working on my MFA in playwriting from the low-residency MFA program out of the University of Nebraska. This entails me visiting Nebraska City, Nebraska for a nine-day residency twice a year for lectures, workshops, etc., and working the rest of the time at home. While in Nebraska, the MFA students and mentors stay at the beautiful Lead Lodge, and because it's a bunch of writers, we all become very familiar with the bartenders there. Last month, when I was at my graduating residency, I went to the bar to get a drink, and the bartender, Mitch, with whom I've spoken several times over my five visits to the lead, said to me, you seem like a film guy. Then he asked me what I thought about Under the Skin. We talked about how great and unsettling we both found it, and he mentioned he only knew about the film because of a podcast he listened to. I asked what podcast, and he, of course, said film spotting. We immediately bonded over the show, and because I'm a dork, I mentioned that I was able to give my top five for the plays adapted into movies top five list. Maybe all of us film spotting fans need a way to recognize each other out in the wild. If so, I'd nominate Mitch's You Seem Like a Film Guy as a great code phrase. I think that works. What about our female listeners, though? Is gal Gal. appropriate? Uh, It's It's not. It'll probably be insulting to someone. (laughs) Well, speaking of insulting, apologies to Mitch and to anyone at the Lead Lounge if, in fact, it's called the Lied Lounge. But I think Lead sounds better, Josh. A little fancier. I'm trying to class the place up. I like it. I'm all for it. And thank you, David, for that note. And thank you as well to... Kieran in Belfast, Northern Ireland, who donated this week, and Ryan from New Jersey, who sent us this note. I've been a listener of Film Spotting for about eight months now, starting with the Gone Girl episode and continuing through every new episode since. A random search for a film podcast brought Film Spotting to my attention, and I'm thankful it did. The true joy of Film Spotting for me happens to be the fact that I never know whether I'll agree with you guys or not going into an episode. It's nice to have some variety in a world where people will agree or disagree with you just to make you happy or upset. Josh, I'm totally with you on not being a huge fan of Interstellar. And Adam, I'm all aboard the Pitch Perfect 1 and 2 bandwagon with you. I'm about in between you two on Baumbach's While We're Young, and I agree completely with both of you in regards to the shockingly adored Jurassic World. It's the honest reviews that have and will keep me coming back. Although the top fives, Film Spotting Madness, Blind Spotting, Sacred Cows, and Massacre Theaters are cool too. Enjoy this $10 donation. It may not seem like a lot, but it works as more of a promise that if you keep me listening, I will continue to donate. Has While We're Young dropped yet down your top five of the year so far list? No. Uh, come on. No. I updated after Mission every Impossible, 2015 movie. Rogue Nation hasn't I, bumped uh, it out? I updated after every 2015 movie I see, and right now it's still there, though it's funny you say it. When I put Mission Impossible there, and it's not really contending for my top five, though I think it is in my top ten at the moment, I did look at While We're Young again. I did look sore at it thumb. again. I said, am sore I keeping thumb. it there? Am I keeping it there? And I'm going to do it just to defy you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I you think are. I am. And for the record, that $10 donation, it does seem like a lot. We appreciate every cent we get, and we feel especially grateful and humbled when we get donations like this one from Ann L. in Seattle, Washington. She is a new $5 a month subscriber. Thank you to everyone who donated to the show this week and who donates to the show every month. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com 
or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hey there, listeners at the Film Spotting Mothership. Allison Wilmore here for Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, coming to you from Camp Firewood's state of the art 10 watt FM radio broadcasting facility. Uh, who am I kidding? Matt Singer and I know that all these years we've been doing this podcast, the equipment hasn't even been plugged in. Nevertheless, on our new episode, we'll be taking a look at First Day of Camp, Netflix's prequel series to the cult comedy Wet Hot American Summer. We'll be recommending some other film and TV work from the Wet Hot American Summer cast and crew, all of it available to rent or stream at home right now. And I'm guessing Allison will also try to make me take a shower. To listen to the episode, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. This is Martin McDonough, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. It's top five time. Josh, sadly, we just have two weeks to go on our top five summer vacation. That is our mini vacation from new top five lists. We ran into a bit of a challenge in an effort to find a top five that would make for an appropriate pairing with the movie we reviewed earlier in the show, The Look of Silence. It's a movie, of course, that documents a genocide that took the lives of hundreds of thousands, maybe up to a million people in Indonesia in the mid-1960s. Last week, I joked that our best option might be a top five we did way back in the early days of the show. Episode 11, in fact, it was our top five one one-timers, films you recommend, but you really have no intention of revisiting yourself. I don't know that The Look of Silence was so disturbing that I couldn't go back to it. I definitely do recommend it and expect to see it again in the future. That episode, Josh, it's itself a one-timer, something that our former host and now co-producer Sam Van Halgren have no desire to listen to or to share with people, despite the fact that it is just sitting there nakedly exposed in the film spotting archives it's not up to snuff what are you, what are you mm. saying episode 11 we didn't quite have it you're yet. still feeling your way <laughs> if through. we ever did okay top five one-timers that's a subject that hopefully you and i will tackle ourselves at some point down the road and of course the top five one-timers documentary edition would have probably been a great tie in this week but our moratorium on new top fives remains in place for our sanity and instead we'll revisit a top five we did back in may 2012 haunted Past movies. This is not a subject we chose because of the new release we reviewed that week. It was Richard Linklater's Bernie with Jack Black, but it was a tie-in actually to the marathon film we discussed that same week. It was week two of our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon, and the film was director Moshen Makhmalbov's A Moment of Innocence from 1996, a movie that has rather uncanny parallels, actually, to The Look of Silence. Once again, revisiting these top fives is just making us look really lazy. There's a show where we did an original top five, a main review, and we were in the midst of a marathon. Yeah. Look what's happened Yeah, that's pretty common. <laughs> Summer break, Josh. But, you know, a moment of innocence. Yeah, I would say there's definitely confrontation going on in that film, a revisit of something that happened in history involving the people who were involved back then and now. But I would say there, you know, both sides were in search of reconciliation True. of sorts. So a, a much gentler film in that way. Let's get into the top five now with a clip from a film where the term haunted past just doesn't quite seem sufficient. I knew that Christ had turned his face away from me and that only a Jesus who no longer cared for me could kill those people that I love. But Leave me alive with my shame, oh God. So I went to that church and I took the glass. I kneeled down and I cut my wrist. But I didn't die, of course. Of course not. 
Meryl Streep there from Sophie's Choice, the Alan Pakula film. I'm going to call this, Josh, for me, my Sophie's Choice memorial list of okay. haunted past movies because I do like that film. I love the book even more. But just when I think about characters haunted by their past and haunted by a decision in particular, it doesn't get any tougher than that choice that Sophie has to make. So for me, it fits for this list. But why don't you set up a little bit how we kind of defined what haunted past meant exactly? Yeah, we did want the character in the film, the main protagonist, to have committed either the terrible act or made a choice that they did regret. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of their action that propelled this. So, so some of these are sins, but not always. Um, I I really like the regret aspect of this as I thought about it a little bit more. So maybe it might not have been this terrible sin, but just something they deeply regret. Yeah. And it does go back to, it was inspired by our discussion of A Moment of Innocence from the second film in our Iranian cinema marathon. And to some extent, Bernie is very much so, I think. Yeah. It's a character not really haunted by his past, but comes to be haunted by a bad decision. One terrible moment where he loses his cool. And I think that's what you're going to see to some extent with the characters that make up our list as well, the main characters in these movies. It's not a case where they were a victim necessarily as you said, haunted by something they did or come to be haunted by something they did in the past. So with that, what's your number five? Number five is Cachet, Michael Hanukkah's exceedingly creepy 2005 thriller about a couple played by Daniela Toy and Juliette Binoche who receive videotapes at their doorstep. And these consist of nothing more than footage of their house being watched from down the street. Now, as the story unfolds, we learn there's a connection between these videos and the husband's past. Cachet works as a straightforward thriller. I mean, it's really clean that way. But it's also this metaphor for the way we can never escape our unaccounted for sins, maybe more so when we try to deny them and block them out. And the couple sleeps in this darkened bedroom where they close the drapes. Uh-huh. And it's really symbolic of just trying to shut the past out. Hanukkah tunes both wavelengths brilliantly here. I really like his frequent use of voyeuristic camera angles. It makes my skin itch, some of those mm-hmm. in the film. But he never overworks the movie's underlying theme. It's it's a haunted past here, and the movie is so terrifying. This past kind of brings that terror right into the present. I love Cachet. That's a great pick. My number five, who the hell are you? Me? I'm sort of a scholar, and my major is you. That is Park Chan-wook's film, Old Boy, where you've got a main character not haunted by his past so much as his past is haunting him. It's stalking him, punishing him mercilessly. And at first it seems like he's kind of following the ground of Kafka here, like the trial where it's almost an original sin thing. The main character is being punished for a crime he doesn't know that he committed. He doesn't know that he did anything wrong. He's trying to figure it out. It turns out, no. He's not being punished just for being alive. He's being punished for something he did do, and he's going to pay for it. And there's a key line in the film that really sticks out to me and why this movie becomes something bigger than just a revenge fantasy with a lot of violence in it. And there's an exchange where the character says, you really are the very monster I created, aren't you? But you won't find out the why of this if you kill me. Fifteen years of being curious would go to waste. So the setup is this main character has been in prison for 15 years, given no explanation, and then he gets out. And he needs to figure out the why. And he gets a choice there. He could basically go on living or he could follow this revenge quest through. He could try to explain his life. He could try to go down that rabbit hole. And all he does in the process is further punish himself. But he could walk away. There is a point where I'm not saying any of us would be strong enough to walk away after 15 years of punishment like that. But nevertheless, he has a choice to make. And he needs so badly to 
explain his past and explain his life that he ends up just causing more havoc and punishing himself and other people even more. And that's where the real tragic element of Old Boy comes in. My number four is a forgotten film from 2000, What Lies Beneath. This was Robert Zemeckis while on break from Castaway. The story is Tom Hanks was losing weight for his part there. So Zemeckis went off and played Hitchcock with Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford. Wasn't very well received, but it was an exercise that really worked for me. Ford and Pfeiffer play married empty nesters whose daughters just left for college She's replaced essentially by a ghost, a ghost that reveals secrets about the couple's past. The movie really created for me this foreboding aura of guilt that permeates every scene. I thought it was fun to watch Zemeckis apply his considerable craft to this sort of genre. And Ford and Pfeiffer are both really good. Hmm. So I think it's a movie that's been forgotten from both of their filmographies and Zemeckis's as well. But if no one bothered to take the time to see it then, really should try to catch up with it. Well, I did not bother to take the time to see it then. I've since caught up with scenes from it. I've seen kind of some of the end showdown dramatics yeah. there on HBO or whatever over the years. But I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Josh. I have to ask, what lies beneath a better haunted past movie than Caché? Hmm. Really? Are you sure you don't want to go back and reorder those hmm. a little bit? Maybe I do want to reorder okay, those. think about that as we go through <laughs> Although that. I'd have to watch it again because I have only seen it when it came out in 2000. Okay. But yeah, from my more recent viewing, I could reorder those. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to my number four and what better way to set it up than with this line. You know, the first thing they should have taught you at hooker school, you get the money up front. That is Hard Eight, a.k.a. Sydney, Paul Thomas Anderson's debut film. Philip Baker Hall is a gambler in his 60s, and at the beginning of the film, we see him go befriend a young man, seemingly strangers, but you kind of assume there's some connection there, even if the younger man, John C. Riley, doesn't really know what that connection is yet. We come to learn what that is as the movie goes on, and basically his mother has just died. He doesn't even have money for a funeral, and Philip Baker Hall's character, Sydney, comes in and says... I'll help you out. Why don't you come with me to Vegas? I'll help you get on your feet a little bit. I'll show you some of the tricks of the trade, and you can kind of make a life for yourself. He really takes a guy who's completely beaten down and tries to help him out. If I were to give you $50, what would you do with it? I'd eat. How long can you eat? How long can you live on $50? I don't know. I would bet not very long. You would bet. I'll tell you what. You come with me back to Vegas. I'll loan you $50. I'll show you what you did wrong. Why? What, what, look, what are you, man? You, you, think, you think you're St. Francis or something? <sighs> uh, no, I don't think I'm St. Francis. John C. Riley in, at the time I saw this, a non-comedic role. I only thought of him as kind of that goofy comedic character here. He's definitely not that. Gwyneth Paltrow with an edge as the prostitute girlfriend to John C. Riley. And this is a case where, as you think about our theme, Haunted Pass, this is a guy, Sidney, who says, I screwed up. I'm not going to give away what his connection is, but it's something from his past that draws him to John C. Riley and to help him. And he basically says, I'm to blame for whatever wrong this kid has done, whatever wrong this kid will do or has been done to him, or will be done to him. I'm taking him on. It's my burden to bear because of this event from my past, and I'm going to do everything I can to help him, no questions asked. And that's really powerful and really interesting to watch how that dynamic plays out and watch the situations he puts himself in and how he sacrifices himself to help this young man all because of this moment from his past. So Heart 8 or Sydney is my number four. 
All right, we'll see how you like my ordering on this one. Number three, I went on the waterfront. It's the obvious but necessary choice, really, okay. for this list. Uh, it's 1954, and along with 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire, which was also directed by Ilya Kazan, it really announced Marlon Brando as the new paragon of screen acting. He plays Terry Malloy here, the former boxer, current longshoreman, who's caught between a corrupt union and his conscience, really. Now, Brando's could have been a contender line, and I'm not going to massacre theater that here. No? I think, no, we've had enough heresy for one show. <laughs> it, it, that line references his decision years earlier to throw a fight. It's a decision he's spent his life regretting. And what's interesting about On the Waterfront to me is it also informs the defiance that really propels the entire narrative of the movie. So kind of sets things in motion right from the beginning, and we watch the after effects of him regretting that and then acting on the regret. How much you waste? And you weighed 168 pounds. You were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Khan. That skunk we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. Remember that night in the garden, you came down my dressing room and said, kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. Yeah, it's a fantastic pick on the waterfront. It's actually one of my honorable mentions, I guess my number six choice. And I sat here looking at my list thinking, really? On the waterfront? Not in the top five? How do you justify that? But somehow there it is on the outside looking in. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. We're sharing our top five haunted past movies. These are movies where a main character did something in their past that they regret or come to regret and are reaping the consequences of at some point. And my number three, I joked about it at the start of the show, but in fairness to me, it's only made one list on film spotting that wasn't an end of the year, end of decade list. That was top five long takes from March 2011. It is the movie Atonement, which I will happily resign to the penalty box after this list. Thank there you. it is. It's not going to be mentioned again, I don't know, for at least six months, maybe a year. I'm putting Atonement aside. But how do you not put it on this list? The movie, of course, stars Saoirse Ronan as Bryony Tallis. She's 13 years old, this wealthy English girl, very active imagination. She sees herself as a playwright, and she does something totally unforgivable. She gets a man arrested for something he didn't do and ultimately keeps two star-crossed lovers apart. It's so unforgivable, her act, that I think a lot of audiences were so mad they wanted to strangle her rather than see her wrestle with her sin. And there was a sense almost that the main character, and in turn the filmmaker and the writer of the book, I guess, were seeking our forgiveness. We're trying to justify somehow what she did. I don't think the movie is doing anything that simple. And it actually makes me think of the film we talked about, A Moment of Innocence, where it's a movie about the power of art, how we can use it or try to use it to work through our own issues, our past traumas, and how ultimately it can fail us. I think it's also an impressive film technically, not just that famous Dunkirk beach sequence, but the use of sound, the narrative layers that show us varying perspectives on a particular incident, but I think it all heightens the love story at its core rather than distracting from it. It was a movie, obviously, that blew me away. I know, as I've said over the years here, I'm a little bit out on an island with this movie. A lot of people appreciate it, but don't love it like I do. 
but it worked for me in a major way, Atonement. Yeah, the title alone seems to put it on this list, but I'm in that category where I appreciate it more than love it. So, you know, obviously I appreciate what lies beneath more. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) My number two is Finding Nemo, which at first glance wouldn't seem to fit this category, but you have to remember this is a movie that's not about Nemo. And I've talked before about how Pixar's films, thematically speaking, they're really for adults. I like where you're going. All right. So that's never more the case than with Finding Nemo, which is a cathartic parable for parents who are paralyzed at the thought of sending their first child off to school. Now, the title indicates that this is Marlin's story. It's his quest to find Nemo. And the narrative is driven mostly by Marlin's regret. Here's this overprotective dad takes the risk finally of sending Nemo to school. He's scooped up by the diver and lost. The story for kids, you know, it's just the rescue of Nemo, but it's also for the parents in the audience. It's Marlon's realization that even after this tragedy, even if he finds Nemo again, he's still going to have to let go of him in order to be a good dad. Mm -hmm. So he's coming to terms with that while regretting that he made the mistake, even if you can really call it a mistake, of letting him go to school. So it's so complicated, these parental emotions that are involved here. It's also interesting to think about Finding Nemo in terms of how we parents are today. It came out in 2003, and that was kind of at the advent of this idea of helicopter parenting, where we organize everything around our kids, our schedules. We're always there watching them and assisting them. It's probably something that even needs to be talked about more now if you've seen the recent Time magazine cover about attachment parenting Uh and this idea that we just can't let go of our kids. So Finding Nemo works as therapy for, uh, for adults struggling with those tendencies and maybe regretting decisions they've made related to them. Well, you could definitely make the case, too, just going back to the opening of the film, even though Marlon was the victim in some sense, he lost his wife in an event that that's what ultimately causes the trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Of not wanting his son to go out there because he just thinks the world is too scary. So he was directly involved in that. I think it does haunt him clearly and sets up the entire film. So I think that's a great pick, a movie I love. My number two haunted past movie appropriately has passed in the title. It is the great film noir Out of the Past, a film that is mostly related in flashbacks with the main character, Jeff, played by the brilliant Robert Mitchum, narrating to Anne, who's his new love, this nice, sweet, innocent girl, the events of his dark past and how he came to this town where no one really seems to trust him. And he's an investigator. He gets hired by Kirk Douglas's character to track down Jane Greer's Kathy, who ends up being the femme fatale of the story. And when he does find her, they end up developing a love affair, as tends to happen in these noir films. And that mistake is what does drive the entire rest of the film. And there are so many great noir elements on display here, this really complex, dark narrative. You know it's not going to be a happy ending. The narration, the femme fatale, I think Jane Greer is one of the best throughout that entire genre. And then the dialogue, too. I mean, you have this great exchange where Kathy, Jane Greer, says to Mitchum, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything except how much I hated him, but I didn't take anything. I didn't, Jeff. Don't you believe me? And he says, baby, I don't care. And nobody can say that better than Robert Mitchum. At one point, she says, did you miss me? And he says, no more than I would my eyes. And it just tells you how he is drawn to her, inexplicably drawn to this femme fatale, this sense of despair. He seems so in control, but at the same time, he's acting almost against his will. Kirk Douglas is perfect as this foil, kind of the gangster who in some ways is pulling all the strings. But one of the first 
films I thought of when I considered this topic had to be out of the past. Yeah, that title is even better for this list than Atonement, actually. So I like that. With number one, I went with Brokeback Mountain, actually. And it's a film, you know, that that doesn't fall into the category of a crime or a sin that people regret. It's almost um, uh, an act of omission that haunts Ennis and Jack, where the Cowboys, played by Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, this is Ang Lee's tragic romance, of course, and in it they're kept apart by prejudice and societal pressure, true, but something else that haunts the entire movie is their own misplaced shame. That's partly what they're struggling with as the story goes on and they're separated. They're haunted not really by something that was done, but almost something that wasn't done, and that, that was their decision to be true to themselves, true to their relationship, no matter what the societal cost. So there's a sense of regret and repression throughout this movie. It makes the entire movie just ache. Yeah. And even a film with such gorgeous landscape scenery, the idyllic nature scenes here, even those have a stormy sense of doom Lee gives to them. Uh, so that's why I had to make Brokeback Mountain my number one. I think it's a great pick. I completely overlooked it, but I can definitely say it would at least be an honorable mention for me. And I think really is obviously driven by, as you said, more of a sin of omission. It's something he could have done. It's a decision he could have made that you think would have altered both of their lives for the better, but he didn't choose that path. And, well, and not an easy decision either. That's no. part of the richness of the film is it's so true to what they were facing. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so complicated. All right. My number one haunted past movie, Josh, you stole a little bit of my thunder already. I thought we'd have maybe one overlap. I wouldn't have predicted this film, but my number one is your number five. It's Cachet, ah. Michael Haneke's film. That's why I had no to give you a little bit No wonder you were so of, mad about what right. lies beneath. I had to give you some crap for it because I couldn't believe what lies beneath was ahead of the great I'm going to go Cachet. watch what lies beneath tonight. Just I to think make. I had, go for it. I think I had Cachet. I'm going to watch Cachet. I had it, I think, among my top ten films of the decade. That's how much I like it. And you, wow. You explained it so very well and you covered the basic setup of the story but what I love about it is you talked about that main character Daniel Otoy the patriarch of this family getting these videotapes these mysterious tapes he's repressed his past but once it's back he can't shake it you mentioned those scenes of them sleeping in their bedroom with everything dark and they're kind of hiding in this cocoon almost but he's got those nightmares that he just can't shake and these images from his past and I don't want to reveal what that event is but it relates to something he did as a young teen to cover his own guilt and in the process he changes another boy's life forever and probably not for the better and I think it's hard not to watch the film and think about Haneke trying to make some kind of statement about French-Algerian relations that Otoy is somehow reflecting a national guilt that has probably been repressed. Everyone's just moved on with their lives. And what this film is saying is some people don't ever move on from those events that happen. And I think it's so interesting, too, that what you see is he makes this terrible mistake in his past that's now coming back to haunt him. And then how easy it is to repeat those same mistakes. There's a moment where he ends up blaming someone for something that they didn't do, just like he did back when he was a kid, because it's just that simple to do, to try to cover up your own complicity. And it leads to yet another tragedy and a really tough graphic scene to watch, but one of the most startling scenes in the film. It's another movie that makes me think about Kafka a little bit. At first, you think it's a case where they're being punished just because they're on trial for what we don't know. But we do get a reason here, whether it's truly linked to the videotapes or not. The beauty of it is, Josh, what I love so much about Cachet is that I think you could repeat this experiment with any of us. And we would go through something similar. What I mean is we all have skeletons in our closet. We all have things we regret. When they first start getting the videotapes, they have no idea it's linked to anything that comes from his mm -hmm. past. And there's no reason to think that they would be. But they immediately start searching their psyche for what they're guilty of. 
and they come upon this. And if it happened to us, what would we ascribe those videotapes to? What would we think we're being watched and judged for, what we're being punished for? I think it could happen to any of us. Maybe that's why it's such a disturbing movie, because part of our mind is doing that as we're watching it. Exactly. So, Cache, my number one pick for Haunted Pass movie. Josh, do you want to quickly mention any honorable picks? Yeah, I'll give a couple quick titles here. Dead Man Walking, which is Tim Robbins' really devastating 1995 directorial effort about Death Row Prisoner, played by Sean Penn. He's kind of stumbling toward personal redemption with the help of a nun who's played by Susan Sarandon. And the other one that I couldn't quite get to fit our parameters, but I, I really wanted to, was The Orphanage, which is the 2007 oh, yeah. Spanish horror I like flick. That film. It's about a haunted orphanage and the woman who tries to bring new life to it. She's haunted by a mistake she made, but the catch is she doesn't really realize she made it until the picture's diabolical ending. Yeah. So I don't know how that would fit, but uh, I considered it. One, two, three, knock on the door. Oh, don't do that. I did that just to scare you. Let's turn the lights off now. For me, honorable mentions on the waterfront, as you said on your list, Ordinary People, I think, qualifies as well. Timothy Hutton's character haunted by something he thinks he should have done that affected, obviously, what happens to his brother in that film. And also, Wild Strawberries. I have to go back to that Bergman film where you've got a character in his 70s, I think, reflecting on his life and through flashbacks and other scenes, dreams, nightmares, you basically come to realize he regrets almost everything he's done through his entire life. So there's not one incident, there's not one crime, but his whole life is something he regrets and is reflecting back on. So those are the three for me that really stuck out, though I also have to include Brokeback Mountain as well. Well, welcome to Stalls. Would you gentlemen like some coffee? You're the hero. Sir, just right. you're the big hero. Sure took care of those two bad men. Really don't like talking about it, sir. Huh. We're trying to get back to normal here. So can I offer you gentlemen some coffee? Sure. Give me some coffee. Make it black. Yes, sir. Joey. And uh, and your friends? They don't drink coffee. It doesn't uh, agree with them. Joey. Joey. You are. My name's Tom, sir. Of course it is. My favorite movie, I believe, of 2007 there, a clip we just heard from David Cronenberg's A History of Violence. No, you didn't miss hearing me mention it during our honorable mentions of our top 500 past movies. It was a film I just plain forgot about somehow but listeners when they sent in their feedback josh they were quick to remind me of it those are our top five haunted past movies we do want to hear your picks share your feedback all over again email us feedback at filmspotting.net you can also leave us a voicemail 312-264-0744 or find us on twitter at filmspotting that's adam i'm at larson on film we're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting over at our website filmspotting.net you can find 10 years of reviews marathons interviews and top fives in the show our archives also at our website take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll your favorite director muse combo version two version two of that poll out this weekend of interest to us on vod she's funny that way peter bogdanovich's first feature film in 13 years good cast owen wilson's in this with jennifer aniston imogen poots michael shannon the great michael shannon and tatum o'neill out in wide release, American Ultra, Kristen Stewart and Jesse Eisenberg, of course, star together in Adventureland. Here they reunite for a stoner slash secret government agent comedy. Hitman, Agent 47 is out. I guess it's a sequel to Agent 46. We missed that one. And Sinister 2, you know, for the kids, a sequel, I'm guessing, to Sinister. Did you see that they were showing that in a graveyard somewhere here in Chicago? 
they were going to screen Sinister. I just got goosebumps thinking about it. And I don't even know if the movie's scary. Yeah. I I don't know about that. I mean, do you th- do you think they got permission from from who? Family Families? members? I mean, it seems a little Uncoop. crass. Yeah, just but, a little bit. Well, here in Chicago, opening at the Music Box, Joe Swanberg's Digging for Fire, Jake Johnson, my guy Jake Johnson, and Rosemary DeWitt plus Sam Rockwell. That's a great cast, and it gets even better. Wait, Brie wait. Larson, oh, Anna Kendrick, oh. and Sam Elliott. Well, that's it. Then the you man have with to the go. stash. You have to I, see it. I can't wait to see Digging for Fire. Also in limited release here in Chicago, Mistress America, Noah Baumbach's latest with Greta Gerwig next week on the show. That is our plan to discuss Mistress America, and we'll have to see what top five from the archives fits best, Josh. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is from The Aches. You can find more information at theaches.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Ich bin Eiken Tabu Shioya. Oh my God. Oh my God. We. Okay. Okay. Um, here we go. I think I did it better the first time. <laughs> I can't believe I spit that all out in one that day. That was impressive. I mean, come on. I'm we a natural. We, all our scenes should be in this gibberish. I think our reviews should be in that gibberish. <laughs> <laughs>